0: So how important is our built environment for our mental and even physical health? Are four walls and a roof enough? Welcome to With Not For, a podcast from the Centre for Inclusive Design, where we look at how we can make our world more inclusive through natural, built and personal experiences. My name is Manisha Amin, speaking to you from the lands of the Kamaragal people of the Eora Nation here in Sydney, Australia. Joining me today on With Not For is Jan Golombiewski, architect, innovator and director of psychological design, spearheading innovation in evidence-based architectural and urban design. Welcome Jan.
1: Thank you so much Manisha.
0: So Jan you've had over a decade's experience in researching architectural design psychology. I'd really be interested in knowing how you got into this field um, in the first place, and particularly looking at the impact of physical environments on mental health as well?
1: Yeah, um, it's an interesting question. I got into it because I was designing a mental hospital. But my interest in it was triggered much earlier when I was actually studying architecture. And we I'd run across this discourse on architectural determinism and were taught more or less that you know you can't use architecture to determine people's behavior and their mental um, health and such things and yet when I was learning that I was acutely aware that I'm very sensitive to the environment I go into a place and I feel it and it makes me feel different and it makes me behave differently Mm -hmm. When I'm in a nice hotel lobby, I kind of behave quite posh. And when I'm in a religious space, I behave somewhat respectfully. And when I'm in a gym, I behave in a kind of sporty way, you know. And I actually am very responsive, and I think that most people are, which means that there's something wrong with the discourse about architectural determinism. And so when I went in to study the um, effect of the built environment on mental health, I had this in my back back of my mind that there's got to be something in it. And I asked my boss at the time, uh, someone called Helga Tembramala, uh, how I designed to actually go beyond the programmatic brief and to actually design for people's Health and well-being, um, and she said, "Look, we're a commercial practice. We don't do that. We just follow the guidelines." Right. And so I finished the project, and that's when I started studying this stuff in earnest.
0: And you actually did your PhD in this area as well, and
1: my masters as and your well. Master's. Yeah, yeah. So I spent a good five years studying this stuff, just you know, a- as a student, and then. God knows how long ever since.
0: And what drew you to it? Because, I mean, it's interesting you talk about, you know, how buildings make made you feel. But was that feeling so strong for you or did you see that as being something so imperative that actually it needed more study?
1: Uh, for that moment, it was something imperative. It needed more study. I used my own time to look into it and I found that there just was not enough study. What there was was very old.
0: Right. And what did it say?
1: Well, I mean, it depends on how far you want to go back. Uh, You can go back right to classical architecture and you can see that the classical world, they believed that architecture affected people's behaviour and their um, spiritual states.
0: Which kind of makes sense. When you look at a church and the way a church might be built, it's very different to the way a jail looks and is built.
1: Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so we have been reading the typology of architecture for centuries. We've only been reading, most of us, written language for a very short time in comparison. We, we can look at a building and know what the building is from the outside. We can look at a building and know more or less what the layout on the inside is. In fact, that's one of the things that I teach my students Look at the building from the outside and I want you to draw the inside. I want you to draw the plans.
0: And so that's really interesting when we think about inclusion and exclusion in terms of who these buildings have been built for and how that design has been built, I guess, to serve some people more than other people.
1: Absolutely. All buildings are designed to serve some people more than other people. The very fact that all buildings have front doors means that they're there to serve some people more than other people. It's just what they're serving that's really, really critical. We all need buildings to provide us with comfort and privacy, and we we need that front door. We need to be able to exclude people from the spaces that we use mm. for one reason or another, and that's that's fine. And I don't think there are many people that would argue against that. But... It's what we're serving once they're inside that is of real critical importance to me. And, of course, what we're serving to the public from the outside.
0: And tell me about that. Like when you first started looking at this and, you know, you'd done a whole lot of study and then you actually went out and started to design different buildings from a health perspective – This notion of who's allowed in, who's not allowed in and how people feel in that space must have really been of primacy, particularly in, you know, when you're looking at um, institutions that were there for mental health.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I have to say that probably the best example I have, Mm. I guiltily put my hand up and say I didn't do it. It is a facility called CAMH in Toronto. And it was a very old-fashioned, Victorian, Kirkbride-style mental health facility. And they wanted to expand it. It wasn't big enough, and the spaces in it were old and redundant. And it had hundreds of acres of... at least, you know, at least 100 acres of beautiful land it was on. It was set in this prime parkland with a great big wall around it in the middle of Toronto. And some people I know went and decided to flip it, take down the wall, leave the buildings in there as mental health facilities, update a lot of them, and turn that parkland into public parkland that is owned by the people who are being treated in the facility. So it's theirs. But they're given the opportunity to, to gift it to the city. And they ran the... Um, the local streets right in they continued that local street pattern into the facility they put new buildings in there on that same street pattern they put cafes and restaurants and all sorts of facilities in there which are open to the public but there's one detail they're run by the patients that is incredible it is incredible and it is such a spectacular success not just was it successful within the campus that they exploded, but it spread outwards. The local people on the in the local area felt so good about being given this park and being given this sort of new vibrancy in the area where they had just had a big wall before, that they actually really welcome those um, people who generally have very chronic mental illness. And... Even the local Starbucks, which is right across the road, I I interviewed the people who work there. They said, no, no, we don't charge people from there. They come in, they sit down, they have their coffee. And for us, it's fine because they're our locals. They're the ones that made this place worth coming to. So we we give them their coffee for free.
0: Um, I I love that idea.
1: So in my practice, one of the things that we're working on now, we're quite relatively early stages, is a project which uh, is centred around a very small but incredibly pretty town in rural New South Wales. Mm -hmm. And what we're trying to do is create a master plan that encourages um, maybe four or five service providers to come into the town and set up various different models for care for people with... um, dementia and um, old age. Right. And the idea is that the local pub will be specially geared to cater or local pubs specially geared to cater for that cohort of people and the local restaurants and the local pharmacy and the local doctor and all of those businesses, a lot of which are already there, will be kind of recalibrated to look after the people that come to town. And it's nicely situated because it's right at the end of a road, so it's very safe. Right. And the idea is that people can go and join the town in any way and there will be at any given time a few people who are being paid by the organisations that are there to just keep an eye out and watch out for those people if they need it.
0: And what was the role of... The people in that, well, in your project as well as the project in Toronto, the people who were seen as the patients or the the people who might buy in or um, be part of this aged care centre in some ways. That's more than that. Um, what was their role in the decision making around what you would do and what you wouldn't do?
1: I believe that they were heavily involved. Mm. Now that now that I recall, um, and they were personally thanked as well right. for it. Um, in, in the case of the, um, the village that we're talking about in rural New South Wales, we haven't yet gone to any particular cohorts of people and engaged with them just yet. But it's going to happen because you can't design, um, for people without them. You know, it's like you, as a designer, you definitely have to make design decisions that are yours to make. You can't design by committee and come out with something really good. And one of the reasons for that is that as a designer, you have skills that you've learned over many years and experience that you've learned over many years and you have an understanding of the capacity of architecture to make a difference, which even other architects don't know. Right? right. So you can't expect everyone to know what's possible. So the idea isn't that you get people involved in actually deciding where the doors are going to go and th- that kind of grain of detail, but they are your clients. Those people are your clients. You have to listen to them. You have to understand. And this is where the way I take it, you, you have to understand their narrative. And Tell me it,
0: more about that. How do you understand someone's narrative?
1: Oh, people are very, very keen to let you know their narrative. They, they wear their narrative literally in the way they dress, in what they want to talk about, how they want to engage with you. People are very keen to let you know their narratives. And their architecture that they choose to live in reinforces those narr- narratives. So an astute designer will be able to read those narratives will be able to read those stories and groove on those stories, right? And and by doing so, they will be able to really go, Ah, oh, hey, we can do this, you know, did, did you know that we can do this? And they, people go, oh, really? I didn't even know that that's possible. And then the architect is able to really bring their richness and their experience in to enrich the narratives of those um
0: so it's like you're taking nice stories life. and creating something that someone didn't really know that they could possibly have.
1: Yeah, Often, yeah, often. Um, you know, sometimes people are very keen and, and know exactly what they want. Wow. Yeah, and, and they're great. But on, other, on the other hand, you can't always rely on them to know.
0: When is the point that you check or how do you check that, the solutions that you're coming up with are actually on the right track
1: constantly we we don't design in isolation from our clients as you say we design with our clients whether we're the ones doing the design and our clients are there and letting us know all along the way what they're comfortable with what they feel good about what excites them and it's really easy you know that even even working with people with dementia they get it right you know they might not be able to remember their daughter's name right but they do know what they like and they're very very keen to tell you what they like in fact those sorts of things are maintained beautifully even you know in the advanced stages of dementia they know what people know what they like
0: and so, when you think about because you've done a lot of work, right, in um, mental health recovery and with people with dementia, etc., when you think about people who, are, you know, have had mental health issues that have worked with you, who've told you what they like, are there lessons that you've learned or things that you've seen there that you feel really are light bulb moments in architecture that really need to be taken and transformed into? what we see as traditional architecture.
1: Well, yes, but they don't necessarily relate directly to architecture. Right. They often relate to things that people don't consider to be important for architecture, such as um, maybe I'm thinking of one example, somebody who is diagnosed as having very chronic bipolar disorder and what he really loves is music. And so when I design a mental health facility, I routinely put a music studio in there, a place where they can go and they can rock out on um, guitars that total full volume and not really be heard from the next room because it's soundproof. <laughs> you know. And, they, and it has to look like a professional studio, right? It's got to look professional. It's got to look the part. It can't just be a multi-purpose room because people have to live their narratives.
0: That leads me to this question around the spaces that we design. And I think in the last couple of years, there's been a greater focus on how we design the spaces that we work and live in. And especially, you know, in the last couple of years, we've seen this merging of work and, and there's no work life anymore. It's actually just all life in which we work and play and Um, those spaces are are changing and and are becoming more dynamic. Have you noticed, what have you noticed about this change in terms of people's mental health? And what are some of the things that we might want to think about?
1: It's not a monolithic question. It's not a monolithic answer. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have responded to the last two years of Zoom very differently. Some people have thrived. Some people have really been able to be heard for the very first time, and other people just can't stand it. So it works both ways. I'll tell you a story. Um, I used to, when I was a child, I lived in Papua New Guinea, and we had correspondence school from Australia, and... After doing correspondence school for maybe a year or so, I came back and I visited Australia during term time and I was able to go and visit my teachers for the very first time. And prior to that moment, all I knew of my teachers was typewritten words because they'd type out words and send me letters. And they were on a typewriter. It was a long time ago. And so I knew their writing. I don't think I even knew their genders. They weren't so much people as they were sort of distant teachers. And I went to visit them for the first time, and I was surprised, first of all, to find out that they were in a tower in the city, not in a school, because I assume that being teachers, they'd be in a school. But this is a correspondence school, so they're in a tower in the city. And now, what really absolutely floored me was that almost all of them were disabled. They were in wheelchairs, and they were blind, and they were deaf, and it's what the New South Wales government at that time was doing with um, their disabled teacher cohort. Say, so, look, it's difficult to you for you getting around to school. Why don't you come and work in this school, and no one will ever even know? And I don't know how they felt about it, but for me, it was extraordinary knowing that you know th- there are some things that are very enabling about distance communication.
0: And when we think about the built environment and our homes, you know, we do all have different needs and yet there are some things that are movable, like there are some things we can do on a computer to change the settings, to make something lighter or darker or quieter. Mm. In a physical space, that's a lot harder. How would you recommend people start to think about their physical spaces in order to create... Good mental health outcomes.
1: So the history of the, the private home, a person's home, really goes back to where people had a, a living room and maybe a bedroom. And the living room kind of had maybe a kitchen in it and maybe out the back there was a toilet and a, um, a laundry. They are very, very basic. They weren't places where people actually lived. They were place, places where people got through the business of sleeping and the very ordinary business of day-to-day life. Over the 20th century, that changed rather radically. And I, um, the, you, you can see it in the history of 20th century architecture when private homes, at the turn of the 20th century, private homes for the very first time started having things like billiard rooms in them. I mean, the wealthy people's private homes, but they're private homes. So people started bringing in the idea of leisure and making that a part of their private home. And so over the 20th century, at times there was kickback against that idea and people, you know, are often neglected the idea of leisure or reduced it to the living room and the TV, you know, the very, very basic minimal leisure And really didn't give it um, the credit that it's due. But with growing prosperity, and there is a lot of prosperity in Australia, certainly, people have started taking leisure more seriously. And so leisure is one of those things that has crept into our private living spaces. Now, work is. okay. we've had home offices for a while, but home offices even just a few years ago, were often places where there'd be a spare room, a spare bed in the room, um, often a lot of storage in those spaces. They were sort of very secondary spaces because people went out to work. The idea that people work at home was never taken very seriously until the last two years. And now people are starting to go, hang on, we can do this. If we have the space, if we actually do clean out that third room, and set it up properly, we can actually work from home. The other things, the other intangibles that you might find in an office, um, such as prestige, um, that's a very important part of work. You know, it's, it's fine to have a space where you can work and you can change your Zoom background and put a Tibetan bell or something behind it. But if you can actually show the real background to the people that you're communicating with. And if you can be in a space which you think is suitable for projecting who you are in your business world, then you can feel it too and and not feel like a fraud with a sort of fake Tibetan bell in the background.
0: I'd like to ask you a little bit more about the mental health recovery um, work that you've done. And I understand you've done some really interesting work in Qatar as well.
1: That was a great project. Um, I was by no means the only architect involved. I was the knowledge lead on that project. It was um, for the National Mental Health Facility in Qatar, as yet to be built, but it was a big project and, and it won a very major award. That project changed a lot of things about the way I think about mental health design. Every bedroom had its own garden. Every room had its own garden. There are a total of something like 300 gardens in that facility.
0: And this is in Qatar, which is a really hot place, right? Yeah. So what? it's probably a bit of a butterfly moment, but what did those gardens look like? I'm fascinated.
1: Well, they they were designed. They haven't been built yet. Right. Um, they're, They're often very shady. Right. So that people could enjoy them and so that the plants could enjoy them and they wouldn't lose their moisture immediately mostly local species, and we chose a lot of scented plants Mm. because one of the delusions that's most common among Arab people, and in that part of the world most of the people using the facility are going to be of Arab origin, is olfactory delusions. So different cultures or I don't know, maybe it's different genetics, we don't really know. But different cultures have different um, propensities to different mental symptoms. And one of the really strongest ones in the Arab world is olfactory delusions. And so we put a lot of sweet-smelling plants and flowers because they are very welcome and they um, disguise people's... um, olfactory dysmorphia right so that's one of the things we did we also had um, horse stables so that people could ride horses and lunge them and just be around big animals and learn courage Um, as well as that you know the wealthy qataris and qataris are wealthy often have horses so they feel very comfortable among them Mm -hmm. Uh, we also put uh an area and facilities in for people to keep their their birds because birds are also very important in katri culture people raise pigeons so they like to keep their pigeons um, they also keep falcons and they keep songbirds and they love they love birds yeah
0: so what's coming up for me is this idea that you know, sometimes when we think about care or hospitals, the focus of this, the space is all about that one thing. So when we're in a hospital, the focus is all about making sure all of the beds and all the structures are there to make sure we're safe um, from a health perspective. There's lots of beeps and buzzes when you're yep. in, say, emergency. But what it sounds like here is that you're not just taking into account the health of the person you're taking into account their culture, their communities, their way of living, and bringing that into these spaces as well.
1: With mental health, that is what health is. Right. Safety is not mental health. In fact, safety is often a conflict with mental health.
0: Say more about that.
1: Well, you lock a door to keep somebody in and keep them safe, and then they feel locked in. Right. So if you are going to lock doors... You have to provide such rich affordance in the space so they even don't even realise that the door's locked. They don't want to go. Um, the, so we, we considered things like the, the journey, the patient journey as they enter the facility, very, very carefully. First of all, we changed its name from the National Psychiatric Facility of Qatar to the Al-Wakra Centre for Respite and Recovery right? So mm-hmm. then you immediately go in there and go, well, this is not what I was expecting because I thought I was going to a mental health facility. This is genuinely a place for respite. I get that this I could recover here. So that's immediately from the language, you know, the written language. But as well as that, we had no control over how people arrived. They often arrive in a, hot, in a ambulance or a paddy wagon. But what we did have arrived um, once we did have control over once people arrived, was how they'd be treated. So the paddy wagon goes and reverses into a um, a sally port, which is a special room which locks around the vehicle to stop people from escaping. They open the back doors, and then the patients come out, and they're in a space. Typically that space is a space where they're searched for weapons and often injected with sedatives and put in a room to cool down. But not in this particular instance. This was designed so that people would be um, opened out to a really very elegant room with comfortable furniture and things to do and a very nice garden open so that they can leave. And the garden is designed so that you can actually see that you can leave. Technically, you can't because you have to get through a pond. And it's going to be very, very, very difficult to get through. You know, we designed it very specially to get make it difficult to get through. But visually, you go, OK, I'm not being locked in here. I'm being allowed out. But there's enough good stuff in here. That there's a juicing machine for a start with fresh vegetables and fresh fruit. So you've got something to do.
0: So when we think about key performance indicators for some of these spaces and places, Jan, um, what do you think they should be?
1: I was really inspired by the key performance indicators of Kutek Poat Hospital in Singapore, where one of their KPIs for the hospital, public hospital, was how many butterflies they had on campus and how many varieties of butterfly they had on campus, because that spoke to humanity as embodied within a natural environment.
0: So that's incredible, butterflies.
1: It meant that they had to have plants. They had to have orchids. They had to have a a variety of natural environments. And they found that some of the varieties of butterflies that came and were spotted in Kutek Puat Hospital, were thought to be extinct.
0: That's incredible. And, you know, we talk about lead and lag indicators and how many beds we have in hospital and how um, how difficult it is to talk about the benefits of that space and place. But by counting butterflies, you're getting all of that.
1: Well, you're not getting how many beds there are. But number of beds in a hospital is a bit like asking how many pages were in that report. It's, right. you know, it's a very rough metric. Um, in fact, it's a bit of a, a furphy anyway, because hospitals are mostly ambulatory anyway. You know, do you have a look at the, what is it? 500 or so beds. I can't remember at um, Westmead hospital, maybe right. it was a thousand, but they have more than a million patients coming through by foot a year so number of beds is that's it's not relevant
0: what do you believe would be better if you had been involved in the design of it or if you had worked with other people on the design of that thing
1: i seldom go into a space and don't think about what i could have done to make that space better it's occasionally I go to a space and I go, oh, they've done such a good job here. There are some great designers who just have it. They know it intuitively or they had some special knowledge, whatever it is, there are some great designers who do it. Yeah, um, I, I'm always bizarrely critical of spaces. The way I see it is that as an architect, we're set designers. We're set designers and we're preparing a stage for the play that is emerging in our clients' lives. And we can set a stage with a gun on the wall where somebody's going to get shot or we can set the stage for a happy ending.
0: Oh, I love that. Well, thank you so much, Jan, um, for your conversation today. And, you know, let's all hope that we set the stages or those stages for happy endings. So thank you for listening and for being with us here today on With Not For. If you'd like to know more about Yarn's work um, or how you can make the world more inclusive, please contact us on www.cfid.org.au or see the show notes. Until next time, this is Manisha Amin from the Centre for Inclusive Design.